All right, uh, we've got a guest speaker today, a good friend of mine. His name is Isaac, Isaac Adams. And uh, Isaac, you can come on up. Uh, Isaac is, uh, lives in D.C. He works for Together for the Gospel Conference. He also works for Cross Conference, which is a, uh, a missions conference for college students. And he also works for The Front Porch. So he's a man of many hats. The Front Porch is a great website, kind of an online magazine that I know some of you look at regularly and all of us should look at regularly. Amen. Isaac, before you get into the Word, would you just take a minute and tell us a little bit about your ministries, what you do, and then take us to uh, Psalm 1. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, happy to do that. Uh, let me just say good morning. It's good to be back. I was texting with Joel last night. I said, man, I'm really excited to see the moose again. And then Joel corrected me, said they're elk, get it straight. So I apologize. It's good to be back here with you all again. It's really good. Uh, like Joel said, I just wear a couple of different hats. Uh, uh, so for Together for the Gospel, this is a, co- this is a conference uh, in Louisville that Mark Dever, Ligon Duncan, Albert Moeller, um, and C.J. Mahaney started. Uh, and I just help serve the efforts of that. It is uh, in Louisville every other year. It's a pastor's conference, but it's just wonderfully edifying for anyone who wants to come and hear good sermons. Uh, Cross Conference, Joel mentioned, is a missions conference for students so that the Lord's uh, glory might go to the ends of the earth like we were just singing about. And the last thing I want to talk about is the front porch, which is just uh, essentially a ministry started by Thabiti Anyabwile and a couple of other African-American brothers to encourage biblical faithfulness in predominantly black churches. So biblical faithfulness in predominantly black churches. Uh, and to that end, uh, I saw a number of just embittered hands that you didn't get Joel's books. So this is the day that the Lord has made, and it's a day of free books. I have a free book. Uh, this is uh, Glory Road, and is the journeys of 10 African Americans into Reformed Christianity, Reformed theology. What on earth is that? Who would like this book? I saw, okay. Oh, man, and I'm the guest preacher. This is bad. Uh, but I know Daniel, I saw Daniel's hand first. We did not plan this, but uh, Daniel, you can come and get your book. Or on, thank you, sister. I appreciate that. So anyway, like I said, it is good to be back with you all. You can see uh, the front porch is just the www.thefrontporch.org. Uh, we just have a lot of conversations uh, about different matters that the scriptures speak about. But uh, you all didn't come to hear about my ministries. You came to hear the word of the Lord. So I say, let's turn to that. Let me pray for us, and we will begin our time in the Word. Oh, Father, we praise you that you are a God who speaks. That you're a God who speaks to people who don't deserve to be spoken to by you, Lord, yet in your mercy and your grace and your kindness that we might know you, you have spoken. Father, I pray that we would all understand better what your Word has said. Lord, I pray that we would love you more, that we would be actually changed by your word, challenged, Lord, comforted by your word. Even now, would you give me the grace uh, to preach, Lord? May we all see Jesus more clearly and love him more uh, because of your word today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Who, who are you? It's a question we often ask. We ask it at the popular level. So we follow people on Facebook and Twitter so that we can see who they are. We ask it at the the individual level. 
good times. We might meet an interesting person and think, hmm, who are you? In bad times, someone, maybe a child talking back to us, offends us, and we think, who are you to say such and such to me? Or maybe you're a certain individual who usually wakes up from a nap at this point in the service, and you're looking up thinking, wow, Pastor Joel looks very tan today. Wait, who is this guy? Who are you? We naturally ask as we evaluate others. But friends, today, let's take that question and just turn it around to ourselves. Ask yourself, who am I? You might think the question is silly or unnecessarily introspective. But I think God wants each of us to read our text today and ask, who am I? So please turn with me now to Psalm 1. It's on page 448 of some of those Bibles, the black ones at least, uh, that were passed out. If you're, new to the, if you're new to the Bible, it's just the big number one. is the Psalm number, those six little numbers after it are the verses. And so asking yourself, who am I? Hear now the word of the living God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this is God's word. Well, Psalm 1 almost sounds like a parable or a proverb, doesn't it? We're not sure who wrote this first psalm and when, but it serves as the gateway to the book of Psalms. It establishes the theme of the entire Psalter. That's what the book of Psalms is called. And the theme of Psalm 1 speaks of instruction for holiness and happiness. The psalm speaks of the way of the righteous, the, the blessed who love God, and because they love God, they naturally love his word. Unlike the wicked, the blessed happily submit to God's word. But let's begin with verses 1 to 3, that first section. There are two sections in Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, verses 4 to 6. We're going to ask ourselves a question for each of these sections, and these secondary questions will help us answer our larger question, who am I? Okay, so for, uh, the question for verses 1 to 3 to ask yourself is this, am I blessed? Question number one, am I blessed? In verse 1, we meet this 
man or woman. That word man represents a godly person regardless of gender. And this person is blessed. By blessed, the the psalmist doesn't mean merely a person who has good things. No, he means this person is truly happy. And not just happy in the way we often use the word, referring to an emotion that comes and goes depending on which side of the bed we woke up on. No, the psalmist means happy in the sense that this person has a confident satisfaction and growing pleasure in God. Regardless of his circumstances, the blessed person is in a state of well-being because he has known God's favor. How does one who knows such favor act? He acts rightly, righteously. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Those words sinners, scoffers, and counsel of the wicked are all the same term, I think, describing the unrighteous. For God, there is a clear difference between the right way to live and the wrong way. I love how one ancient Christian put it, There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And between the two, there is a great difference. Beloved, there is a great, clear difference between the wrong way to live and the right way. But is living righteously as simple as doing good things? Is it as simple as ignoring people who we think are wicked? You know, a family member offers you advice and you say, sorry, I'm righteous. Can't listen to the counsel of the wicked. Well, no, we're called to, we're called to love others, to respect them, to do them good. God's people are those who are called to be in the world, but not what? Not of the world. So in verse 1, the psalmist is saying, the blessed man is the person who is not fundamentally characterized by evil actions in wicked company. The psalmist is not saying the blessed man is perfect. No, we all sin. Sin is doing, saying, feeling, wanting, thinking what we want when God commands otherwise. Sin is fundamentally our human nature. But the blessed are those who are saddened by their sin and who turn from it. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from sin that grieves God and therefore should naturally grieve us. Blessed people do not repent simply for themselves, but for the love of God and to the glory of God because they know what God has done for them. So if your Christianity never challenges the way you live 
or people, the things you pursue, friend, you may have simply made up your own religion. And God calls his people to abstain from evil. That's what holiness basically is. Cleanliness from impurity. Separation, distinction from impurity. The Bible tells Christians to flee evil desires and pursue righteousness. And friends, that pursuit is hard. Many of you who have been walking with the Lord for years know it is hard to be a Christian, isn't it? It's hard to fight temptation. That's why we can appreciate so much the warning of verse 1. Do you see the progression of verbs? Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners. Sit in the seat of scoffers. Isn't that how sin works? You think a little can't hurt, so you walk with it, and those who enjoy it. But before long, you're stuck standing in your sin. It's harder to throw off, and all of a sudden, you look up, and you are sitting rooted in your sin. I wonder if you're sitting in sin this morning. If you are, humble yourself, confess to God, and plead for his forgiveness. We read this earlier. We didn't plan this. The scriptures say that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And brothers and sisters, God gives us even more than forgiveness. He gives us other brothers and sisters to help us fight our sin. Christian, we're not called to walk, stand, and sit by ourselves. No, we're called to march with the family of God, our local church. So if this church is where you regularly attend, then these are the people you should primarily be walking with in life. Friend, do you love the company of the wicked more than you love the, comf- more than you love the family of God? Are you a blessed person? I speak of love because that's where the psalmist turns in verse 2. So negatively, in verse 1, he talks about what the blessed person avoids. But in verse 2, he turns to the heart. The more you read the Bible, the more you'll see that God is very concerned with our hearts. He says of the blessed person that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So the psalmist clarifies that righteous acts, what we saw in verse 1, are not merely external, but they flow out of the internal, the heart that delights in God, delights in the Lord. When you see Lord like this, in all caps, it's not a typo. It means Yahweh, which was Israel's special name for God. God had a personal relationship with Israel. He chose them for this relationship, not because of anything they did, but simply because he loved them. 
He kept them and repeatedly delivered them from trouble. Israel usually responded by disobeying, proving that they were unworthy of such kindness. But because he had every right to and because he wanted his people to know him, Yahweh gave his people rules. Why? Well, beloved, Joel said this earlier, God's desire is to be known in all the earth. And knowing God is true happiness. So God's people were to make God known by following his rules. This would make them distinct. It would make them holy from other nations. These other nations could then see what God is like by the way his people acted. This is partly why sin among God's people is so sickening to God. Because it lies about what God is like. But in following his rules, God's people would also find true, satisfying joy. Because they would find their joy in God. Brothers and sisters, that's the only kind of joy that lasts. And that's why obedience to God is so sweet. So for the sake of his glory in the world and for his people's joy, Yahweh gave his people rules. Primarily through his servant Moses. We read some of those earlier. Rules like the Ten Commandments. And other laws that Moses kept in the Torah or the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch was the psalmist Bible at the time. It's the law of the Lord that verse 2 speaks of. So pause right here. If you follow Jesus' ministries in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see his love for the Old Testament. If the Old Testament law was enough for the psalmist and Jesus to delight in, brothers and sisters, it's enough for us to delight in. Don't neglect your Old Testament. It's half of our story. Anyway, the psalmist says the blessed man wants to obey God's laws. And not because of his own goodwill, but because he has known God's favor, the blessed person treasures the words of God, not the words of the wicked. And those who treasure God's word trust that more blessings come from obeying it. By God's grace, they understand that a holy life is a life that follows God's instruction and that a holy life leads to a truly happy life. This may seem so backward to us. We who live in a world that hardly associates happiness with obedience. Nevertheless, the blessed person studies God's law. They meditate on it. How often? Day and night. Day and night. Mentioning those two ends of the spectrum, day and night is a Hebrew poetic technique that suggests day, night, and everything in between. The blessed meditate all of the time. In bright seasons of life and in dark seasons of life, the blessed person is joyously devoted to God's word. Are you a blessed person? 
Let me be crystal clear. The righteous actions we are speaking of, like delighting in God's word, do not make you right with God. No, they flow out of a heart that has already been declared righteous by God. A heart that knows God's favor is a gracious gift, not a reward for any good thing that person has done. Do you delight in reading and obeying your Bible because you know what God has done for you? Beloved brothers and sisters, has reading what God says become mundane to you? So often can in the Christian life. I mean, if we're honest, Bible reading is hard sometimes, isn't it? The Bible is hard to understand sometimes. Many of us have busy schedules or we are just tired. Maybe you're thinking, I haven't read my Bible all week, much less once a day. Sometimes encouragements to read God's word sound like encouragements to blind faith. You know, just be quiet and read the Bible. Brothers and sisters, what should we do? Will we remember that God did not save us because we read the Bible perfectly, but because of his grace? We remember that we need not expect a feeling of euphoria every time we read the scriptures. We remember that we can't calculate all the things God is working out in our lives when we read his word. I've heard it said that God is doing 10,000 things in our lives. And we can see maybe three of them. So we build our knowledge of God because that's what helps fuel our love of God. And we do so by moving forward and continuing the work of reading our Bibles. Beloved, it takes work to read our Bibles. The light in God does not come naturally. No one is waking up going, I love God all the time perfectly. It requires sacrifice, commitment, time, and work. Verse 2 shows this. Look back at it. A righteous man who delights in God and on his law, he does what? He meditates day and night. And that meditation fuels his delight in God and in his word. Uh, but I fear meditation is a lost discipline in the Christian life today. One result of Adam and Eve's sin is laziness and a mindset that says something easy is right and good and something hard like meditating is wrong. But what, is, what does it mean to meditate? Well, to meditate, Martin Luther says, is to think carefully, deeply, diligently, and properly. It means to muse in the heart. So when I bought my wife's diamond ring, this thing fascinated me. For some absurd length of time, I just twirled this thing in front of my face. I want to see every facet, every reflection of light. Does it smell like anything? What's it taste like? I didn't lick it. Don't worry. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, God's word is the diamond of the church. Meditate on this precious stone. 
Luther goes on to say, Scripture is a stone of offense and a rock of scandal for those who are in a hurry. Don't gloss over this diamond. Bible intake is not optional for the Christian. It's basic. There's an old hymn that says, Take time to be holy. Speak often with the Lord. Abide in Him always and feed on His Word. Make friends of God's children. Help those who are weak. Forgetting in nothing His blessing to seek. Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus like you Like him, you shall be. Your friends and your behavior, his likeness shall see. Take time to be holy. Let God be your guide. And run not before him whatever betide, that's whatever happens to you. In joy or in sorrow, still follow your Lord. And looking to Jesus, still trust in his word. Take time to be holy. Be calm in thy soul. Each thought and each motive is beneath God's control. Thus led by his spirit to fountains of love, you you soon shall be fitted for service above. It is true, beloved brothers and sisters, that many of us don't have time to meditate which is why we have to work to make time. It will likely mean sacrificing some part of our schedule. It might mean some creativity, like listening to a sermon as we drive to work. Or just take one verse. Whatever it is, we don't have to read a thousand verses in one in a private prayer closet to meditate. So just look at Psalm 1. There are six verses. You could take one verse per day and ask who, what, when, where, why, and how of each verse. Who is the blessed? Why is he blessed? That's all I've done to prepare the sermon today. I've prayerfully asked questions of the text, studied it and wrote down what I think it says with the help of others. So let me be clear. What I am not saying is the longer you read, the better Christian you are. The Christian life just doesn't work like that. You might be single this year, and then when you get married, or when you have a kid, or you have your 10th kid, your time drastically changes. So comparing ourselves today to ourselves last year may not be the best indication of our growth in the Christian life because our circumstances change. Beloved, growth in the Christian life is slow, And it's often hard to tell. It can feel like one step forward and two steps backward. But we are not called to have all the time in the world. We are called to be faithful with the time God has given us today. So discussing how he would meditate on God's word, which he called an apple tree, Luther said, First, I shake the whole apple tree that the ripest apple may fall. Then I climb the tree and shake each limb. 
and then each branch, and then each twig, and then I look under each leaf. If you only have time to get the apples, friend, take the apples and keep glorifying God in your other responsibilities. I'm encouraged by so many of you older saints in the faith who model what years of meditating on Scripture in different seasons of life can do. Seasons when you have a bunch of kids, seasons uh, of sorrow, of loss. Continue in that, brothers and sisters. You are a tremendous testimony to the value of God and his word. There are plenty of ways to meditate. There's a book, good book called Spiritual Disciplines. That's Spiritual Disciplines by Don Whitney. If you want to know more about meditation, we can meditate on verses 1 and 2 longer, but we must move on. Verse 3 describes what this blessed, righteous person is like. Such beautiful imagery here. This one who delights in God's word is like a tree planted by streams of water. We're talking a lot about trees today. So this person is firmly established. He's rooted. The water close to him nourishes him, shown by his leaf not withering, shown by his fruit. Fruit in the Christian life is evidence that God is at work in you. Jesus said every good tree will bear fruit. Galatians 5 lists fruits of the Holy Spirit at work in Christians. So the blessed is like a tree in season. He produces fruit. Fall is my favorite season. I love the crisp air. I don't drink coffee, but I see all the coffee people ranting about pumpkin, whatever, spice, this and that. But fall is often a funeral for the trees. Their leaves die. Their fruits die. But regardless of the season that we are in, Christian, God produces fruit, however subtle, in us. One of the primary ways he does that is by his word. And as trees grow, they produce more fruit that can feed more people. Brothers and sisters, other people benefit from the fruit that God produces in us as we grow in love for his word. So when you read in your Bible that you should serve one another and you do that in happy, faithful obedience, your Bible reading benefits others. You're like an apple tree dropping apples for people, to, for people around you to feast on. People around godly people prosper. So look around yourself and ask, whom am I prospering? Brothers and sisters, another way to prosper someone else is prayer. What a prayer someone is for someone. You can meditate on this psalm by praying, Father, help my husband to delight in your law. Push my pastor to meditate on it day and night. Keep my sister from walking in the counsel of the wicked. Make my wandering grandson like a tree planted by streams of water so that he may not wither. Friends, taking God's word and that he has breathed and praying it back to him is such a wonderful habit to develop.
The poet George Herbert said prayer is God's breath returning back to him. Pray to love God's word like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who prays, incline my heart to your word and not to selfish gain. But wait, what about, what about that last line in verse 3? Is it wrong to want prosperity? That last line says, in all that the blessed man does, he prospers. Really? How can that be true when so much around us tempts us to believe a different story? By the world's standards of health and wealth, we might not be prospering. But by God's standards, we are prospering if our happiness isn't rooted in our stuff, in our relationships, in our bank accounts, in our reputations, but in Christ. The founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Consider him, brothers and sisters, who endured from such sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. But before we consider Jesus further, let's move on to verse 4. And the question for this section, verses 4 to 6, is this. Am I wicked? Question number 2. Am I wicked? The scriptures are clear. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But those who receive God's grace, he counts as righteous. What of those who don't receive God's grace? Well, our text implies that the wicked do not have true happiness. They do not submit to God's word out of love for God. They walk in their own counsel, stand in their own ways, and try to sit on the throne of their own lives and rule them. They do not truly delight in God's law, but sin day and night. They're not planted near streams of water. They wither. Verse 4 explains their state simply by saying that they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, the psalmist agrarian culture would have naturally understood this farming simile. I am a city boy, so it is like another language to me. But chaff are the husks and straw that get removed when farmers are threshing wheat. In other words, it's the, the bad part, the utterly useless part. Unlike the firmly rooted tree of verse 3, chaff has no rooting. And that's why when the farmers throw the thresh wheat in the air, breeze drives it away. Notice he said the breeze, not the hard winds, just the breeze. Like our first parents, Adam and Eve, after they sinned in the garden, the wicked are driven away from true blessedness because of their evil works. In a strikingly similar passage to Psalm 1, Jeremiah 17, you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruits of his deeds. Who knew God cared so much about fruit? The fruit of our lives. The, the Bible declares the most honest and accurate diagnosis of the human heart and Jeremiah's observation is exactly what we see in verse 5 of Psalm 1. So that therefore at the beginning marks the, at the beginning of this verse marks the transition to the conclusion of the psalm. And after that it reads, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Why? Verse 6, for, or because, this is the reason, Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Brothers and sisters, we will all appear in Yahweh's courtroom, not as those who pronounce, judge, not as those who pronounce judgment, but as those who will be judged. The wicked will not make it through this judgment they will be cast to that place of eternal unrest, hell. Left to our own, none of us will stand in the congregation of God's people, the righteous, because none of us are righteous. So how do we become righteous in God's sight? Well, we consider the one who was righteous. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so Jesus walked among the wicked, stood in the way of sinners, sat with the unrighteous. Though he was tempted as we are, he never gave in to temptations because he delighted in Yahweh's law perfectly. The law of the Lord is what he quoted when he fended off Satan's temptation in the wilderness. Just Deuteronomy verses. Jesus is the most glorious picture of what the blessed man of Psalm 1 looks like. We are not. We should have been on that cross because like Adam and Eve, we took the fruit, but Jesus is the one who climbed the tree. Instead of being, instead of being like a tree planted by streams of water, Jesus actually hung on that Roman tree, on that cross, in our place as water streamed from his side. Streams of mercy, we sang of it earlier, never ceasing. Jesus withered as the unrighteous on the cross. He lost everything so that we might prosper. We, weak little trees, can't even save ourselves with our own fruit, but the fruit of Jesus' tree would prove sufficient to cover the sins of all who would trust in him. It would nourish us back to life. And how do we know this? Because three days after his murder, Jesus came back to life. His resurrection proved that God accepted his sacrifice on the behalf of those who turn from their sins and trust him. And those who, and those who do can stand in the judgment with confidence. They can stand fully forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future. They can stand in the congregation of the righteous because God judges them not on the basis of their deeds, but on the basis of Jesus' deeds. As Paul says about Jesus, for our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we, the wicked, might become the righteousness of God. So we must all answer yes to question number two, am I wicked? But praise be to the Lord that we who trust in Christ can answer yes and amen to question number one, am I blessed? Because Jesus is our righteousness, amen? He paid it all, brothers and sisters. This is good, good news. If you are not a Christian, if you are a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, won't you turn from your sins, trust in Christ, and delight in this good news even now? Don't wait, even now. He is worth it. He is true happiness. That's why it's tragic that some preachers, some even in this area, nowadays mud happiness in the gospel with worldly prosperity. Instead of dealing with the most basic need and how Christ so richly met it, they, came, they say Jesus came to hook us up. He came to make us happy, wealthy, and healthy. Creflo Dollar, a prosperity teacher in Atlanta, recently tweeted, Jesus bled and died for us so that, we can lay, so that we can lay claim to financial prosperity. Beloved, God did not slay his own son to fix our 401ks. We don't merely need an attitude correction. We need utter resurrection. Just look at the godly, godliest men in Scripture and see how they prospered by the world's standards. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace. The apostles were murdered and exiled. One pastor commented on our culture's basic premise that says if you do good things, life will go well for you. He says so articulately. That's wrong. Jesus lived perfectly, yet suffered. Jesus was the happiest man on earth, yet still so sorrowful. He, was, he had no 401k, yet he was still so rich. He saved and resurrected all of those heroes of the faith we just discussed, not to worldly prosperity, but to eternal prosperity, and he will do the same for all of us who trust in him, granted that we suffer like him first. As one scholar put it, brothers and sisters, in the end, the biggest problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it promises too much, but that it promises far, far too little. But don't be troubled, brothers and sisters. False gospels will end one day, as will all evil. Did you note the inevitability of the words in verses 5 and 6? The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Not maybe. Will. Their way will perish. Now, it's easy to be envious of the wicked, isn't it? Sometimes it looks like they have true happiness. David, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, struggled with that too. In Psalm 73, he says that he's wasted his life obeying God. And he was envious of the wicked when he saw the prosperity when he saw their prosperity. 
You know, they seemingly have it so easy. But, he goes on to say, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of the Lord. And I think David is meditating as he is writing this. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That's Psalm 73, brothers and sisters, it is yours to meditate on this week. Stare at that diamond. Let's finish staring at Psalm 1. At the end of the day, there really are two ways to live. The way of the righteous the way of the wicked. One will thrive and go on to eternal life and the other will perish and go on to eternal suffering. The dilemma could not be more dire. But praise be to God that Jesus solved this dilemma. And he is coming back. Not as a sacrifice, but as a judge to separate the good trees from the bad trees. The wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. Pick your metaphor, but more importantly, pick your side. Blessedness or wickedness? Jesus or death? There is no neutral ground with God. Many, many people think today, I am okay with God. And that is fine. But the real question is, God okay with you? He knows the way of the righteous and he searches the heart of all. And there is no fooling this God. So do you know this all-knowing God? Is his word your delight? Who are you? Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your grace and your faithfulness to so many of us in this room that who we are is sons and daughters of the living God because of Christ's mercy. Father, I pray that we would know this mercy more in the good times of life, in the hard times of life, and that we would love your word, Father, that we would trust what you're doing even when we can't see it, that we would walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you so much for these brothers and sisters in Baltimore. Lord, I pray that you would bless their ministry, Lord. Turn them all into trees planted by streams of water. Lord, let them prosper. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.